when the faithful said no. Here's a question to consider. If God came to any one of us, if he appeared in a dream or if he sent an angel and commanded one of us to do something, how would we respond? I don't know about you, but I would imagine that I would probably be too scared to do anything else other than what I was told to do. The idea of saying not today or no thank you, or even outright refusing, would be almost, if not probably, unthinkable. And I might be worried, like as of before the ark, about being struck down instantly for not doing the right thing. But as I think about that question a little more, I'm not entirely sure my answer, that I'd just do what I was told, isn't perhaps just a bit of wishful thinking. In the last week, all of us have read or recalled the words of God, and I'm sure we have struggled to do every bit of what we know to be right. We may have possibly even ignored some of it, and perhaps even said no, at least in our hearts, to one or two things that we know we ought to do. And if we're honest, it's probably more than just one or two things. But would we pray to God? Could we pray to him and directly say no? It's this question I want us to consider as we begin our words of exhortation. There is a monumental example in the scripture of one man's obedience to the will of God, despite the fact that every urge otherwise was to say no. That man was Abraham, who in Genesis 22 took his son to Mount Moriah to be sacrificed in response to a command from God. Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. How could anyone follow this instruction? It must have challenged Abraham completely, not only because he was a father who loved his son, but also because the command must have challenged his very understanding of God and his promise that in this child would his seed be reckoned. But all the same, he did obey without hesitation, and this act of incredible self-sacrificing faith on the part of Abraham stands in Scripture as an example of how a man with the same feelings that each one of us have by faith followed what was surely one of the most difficult commandments ever given by God. In the words of Hebrews 11, which we know so well, we read, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that an Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. It's remarkable to think that Abraham, as the writer of the Hebrews here states, had already worked out the solution to the problem presented by God's command, that God would raise Isaac from the dead to fulfill his promises. We cannot always see what God has in store for us, let alone have insight like that. But Abraham far exceeds so many others in his absolute confidence in God's plan in his life, more than many others, as we shall see. Consequently, Abraham sets the standard in the scripture of following the word of God. He becomes the father of the faithful and stands out amongst all generations as the father of them that believe and of those who walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, as Paul says in Romans. That is, of course, until the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Against the background of Abraham and the background of Christ, it's no small thing to say no to God. But how about saying no to God and also that you give up all the work that he has for you to do, and even more alarmingly, that you want to die. Yet that is what we hear from the mouth of the prophet Elijah in First Kings chapter 19. And when we hear them, 
we cannot help but be moved by his situation. Because, probably for all of us, we can relate, at least in some way, to this moment. While we marvel at the magnitude of Abraham's faith and the love for his father displayed by the Lord Jesus Christ in laying down his own life for the world, sometimes we find ourselves sitting under juniper trees, saying to ourselves, if not to God, this is too hard, and I can't do it. Let's come briefly to 1 Kings chapter 18 to set the context, a chapter that we know so very well from our Sunday school lessons. It is the time when God defeated the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and when Elijah, from the high point of that moment of God's public victory, ran before the chariot of Ahab as the clouds darkened and swirled behind him. It was when Elijah, filled with the expectation that a reformation was about to come to the house of Israel, expected God's victory to change the hearts of the nation, none the least which was the heart of Ahab. In verses 44 to 46 we read, And it came to pass at the seventh time that he said, Behold, there ariseth a little cloud out of the sea, like a man's hand. And he said, Go up. Say unto Ahab, Prepare thy chariot, and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. And it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Now, sometimes I can't help but think that this last thought in verse 46 is one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. It reminds us of that remarkable verse in Isaiah 40 verse 31 which says, But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Hadn't Elijah waited on the Lord? Yes, he had. There at the brook and at the house of the widow of Zarephath, waiting for the drought to turn the hearts of the people back to their God. But that wasn't to be. In the beginning of chapter 19, Elijah finds that despite the drought and despite the vindication of God's name, despite God's unmistakable miracles, he finds the crushing reality of who really ruled in Israel. And that was Jezebel. In chapter 19, verse 1 to 2, we read, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So with these words, Elijah was driven to flee for his life to the wilderness. We feel for him there because we all go to the wilderness at times in our lives. The record continues, And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life, and came to be a Sheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. There is no doubt about what is happening in this verse. Having mounted up with wings as eagles, Elijah is now faint and weary, and it's a terrible reversal. He now refuses the comforts of his country. He refuses the comforts of company. He isolates himself, a day's journey from all others, and sat down where no one else was or would go. As we read in verse 6, he was not eating or drinking. He had no motivation, no motivation to do anything it would seem, not even to move. And there he was alone with his thoughts under that tree, in a state of absolute despondency and depression. And being in such a state, 
he had resolved to ask one more thing of God. Take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. That state is a dark and dangerous one, and often difficult to escape from. This wonderful, vigorous prophet has entered into a very deep depression. His despondency was so acute that he asked God to take his life. The people of Israel were never given the option of taking their own life because they realised that their life was in God's hands, not their own. All of this poses a question that recurs throughout Scripture. Can we indeed say no to God? And what happens to us if we do? As we shall see, for Elijah, it was the thought that he was alone that really troubled him. Each Sunday is a day for us to check in on each other. And it's important that we do so because our life in Christ is not always easy. We can take some consolation from the words of Paul in Corinthians when he said, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. We know that the power of God is most evident in our lives when we find ourselves to be at our weakest. For that matter, to be brought to our weakest is perhaps something that we ought to periodically expect in this life, if only for that reason. In the case of Elijah, God still had a purpose with him. It was not to be out in front, slaying the prophets of Baal and bringing down fire from heaven. It was going to take an entirely different turn. Hence, God's answer was carefully formulated to strengthen, comfort, correct and challenge him. When Elijah was at his spiritual lowest, when he said no to God, God turned him around and pointed him in a different direction. 1 Kings 19 verse 5 has to be one of the greatest comforts in scripture when we consider where and what state of mind Elijah was in. Emotionally and physically exhausted, Elijah is asleep. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked And behold, there was a cake baking on the coals, and a cruise of water at his head, and he did eat and drink and laid him down again. We note that because he's in such a state, the angel must come to him twice. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. That's all we need to know, isn't it, there in that verse? There is an immense compassion and understanding here in that moment, isn't there? The angel of Yahweh comes to the prophet and, as a nurse and a physician does, ministers to him. He notes, too, that he doesn't have enough strength to get to where he's going. And that place was Horeb. Rather than punish him, look at what God did for him. In verse 8, And he arose and did eat and drink, and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights, and came unto Horeb, the mount of God. It's worth us thinking here of those very applicable words from Deuteronomy 31 and verse 8. He will not fail thee, neither forsake thee. So fear not, neither be dismayed. And that really is a lesson for us when we reach our lowest ebb. Although fear and dismay can come so easily, eating and drinking of the word of God can provide the nourishment for us to continue on our journey. In verse 9 we read, And Elijah came thither unto a cave and lodged there. Now exactly how long the time was between this and the next date is not clear. But while God had attended to Elijah's physical needs, he was yet to tend to his mind, which he was about to do. What do is that here, Elijah? Is a telling question. But Elijah is adamant in his answer. He will bring his cause directly before God, 
And he said, I have been very jealous for the word of the Lord God of armies. The title he uses is Yahweh Tzveoth, the militant title of God. For the children of Israel have forsaken the covenant, thrown down thine altars, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. The implication he makes is that God has lost the battle. Although the prophet is in a cave in Sinai, spiritually he is still under that juniper tree, forsaken, despondent, in an absolute despair, seeking to challenge God's work with him. How he so needed God's ministrations in his life to put him right. Now Elijah was not alone in scripture, in sitting under that tree. We find throughout the scriptures numerous people finding themselves, some on several occasions, questioning or challenging the work of God in their lives. Sometimes they misunderstand their circumstances. Sometimes they find themselves outrightly saying no to Almighty God. Elijah here in this record joins a group whose words, thoughts and actions challenge or contend with the will of God. Elijah said to God, it is enough. No more. Leave me here. End me here. It's over. I know your will, but no more. I'm the only one left and there is no point in going on. But he wasn't alone. Elijah said no more. Moses said, not me. And Jonah said, do not send me to them. We all, each of us, have times throughout our lives, like these did, when we question the will of God with our lives. It might be that we know the commandment of God on the matter, but we simply can't live in conformity with it. Or we may discover that we, or someone we know, is gravely ill and we question the will of God in relation to this. Or it might be that our lives turn unexpectedly at home or at work. Or when we find ourselves in trouble and we see that the path ahead is paved with trouble, we may question God and how he could intend this for us. And while we know, don't we, that God is at work in our lives, we either cannot see or will not accept the path that he is laying out for us. <laughs>